All right. I wanted to make mention <coughs> very quickly uh, before I get into the message tonight. Um, to the, the prayer list, I, I've been meaning to say this publicly several times. If you want your, like, one example, Roy, back, we've been talking about him for quite a few weeks now. If you want somebody put on um, on a more permanent basis, um, maybe just text me or call me. Sometimes people, it's just a prayer request that's for the next day or so. So if somebody that is ongoing, we'll, uh, uh, we'll probably put Brother uh, back on next. Just a thought. You want somebody on. Job chapter 6. Tonight, Job chapter 6. So far, we've been able to keep a chapter a night. So we're going to try to go through this again tonight, uh, this entire chapter. Just look at the different things. I'll probably start by reading the whole chapter which is always a temptation with preaching to not burn up too much time reading scripture when the truth of the matter is this is more powerful than anything I have to say. So I, I don't ever want to apologize for reading a lot of scripture. But tonight we'll look at Job's response. Uh, he has, you, you had his friends show up. They sat for seven days. Two weeks ago we talked about Job's complaints. And he, uh, there's a whole chapter of him just pouring his heart out. Last week his first friend talked, Eliphaz, and gave him his pontification about his problems. Uh, it was pompous, kind of. Uh, there is some truth in it. We talked about that, but it certainly wasn't helpful. And tonight, Job is going to respond to him. And so that's what we're going to look at this evening. Uh, chapter 6, he answered and said, in verse number 1, Oh, that my grief were, were thoroughly weighed, and my calamity laid in the balances together, for now it would be easier, or would be heavier than the sand of the sea, therefore my words are swallowed up. Isn't that a poetic way to say your troubles are great? If you put balanced on one side all the sand of the world, my troubles would be equal. That's pretty heavy. For the arrows of the Almighty with, are within me, and the poison where drinketh up my spirit, and the terrors of God do set themselves in array against me. Doth the wild ass bray when he hath grass, or loweth the ox over his fodder? Can that which is unsavory be eaten without salt, or is there any taste in the white of an egg? The things that my soul refused to touch are as my sorrowful meat. Verse 8. Oh, that I might have my request, and that God would grant me the thing that I longed for, that was death. Even that it would please God to destroy me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. Then should I have comfort. Yea, I would harden myself in sorrow. Let him not spare, for I have not concealed the words of the Holy One. What is my strength that I should hope? What is mine end that I should prolong my life? Is my strength the strength of stones? Is my flesh of brass? Is not any help? Is not in my help in me? And is wisdom driven quite from me? To him that is afflicted, pity should be shown from his friend. That's a little dig, which is true. Uh, but he forsaketh the fear of the Almighty. My brethren have dealt deceitfully as a brook, and as a stream of brooks they pass away, which are blackish by reason of ice, and wherein the snow is hid. At what time they wax warm, they vanish. When it is hot, they are consumed out of their place. The paths of their way are turned aside, and they go to nothing and perish. The troops of Tima looked, and the companies of Sheba waited for them. They were confounded because they had hoped, and they had thither and were ashamed. They came thither and were ashamed. For now you are in nothing. You see my casting down and are afraid. Did I say bring unto me, or give me a reward for of your substance, or deliver me from the enemy's hand, or redeem me from the hand of the mighty? Teach me, and I will hold my tongue, and cause me to understand wherein I have erred. How forcible are right words. But what doth your arguing reprove? Do ye imagine to reprove words in the speeches of one that is desperate, which are as the wind? Yea, ye overwhelm the fatherless. Ye dig a pit for your friend. Now therefore be content. Look upon me, for it is evident unto you if I lie. Return, I pray you. Let it not be iniquity. Yea, return again. My righteousness is in it. Is there any iniquity in my tongue? Cannot my taste discern perverse things? Father, I pray you'd help us tonight. 
bless the reading of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. The words came, obviously, from him again in great anguish. They're coming from sorrow. He's suffering. Uh, Eliphaz has been a disappointment, to say the least, uh, coming down hard on Job. So there's no real way in chapter 6 and 7 to, because he, he goes on in chapter 7, by the way, it's no way to really uh, outline this because it's kind of a rambling of a mind overcome with suffering. And so he's just kind of talking what comes to his heart here. Uh, we are going to look at the rigor of suffering, the request for death, the rebuking of Eliphaz, the repining about life, and the reproving of God. Uh, that's going to be, we're not going to get through all those tonight, but that's basically the breakup of his little uh, speech here on chapter 6 and 7. So starting with the rigor of suffering, he starts to reiterate his suffering. Obviously, Eliphaz does not realize how greatly Job is suffering. Uh, he was made, sort of made light about it. Now Job's going to try and correct that problem. He look, talks about the weight of it. Uh, oh, that my grief were thoroughly weighed, that Job's <laughs> affliction weighed more than his friends realized. And we've talked about this and, and continue to, Job's condition and the compassion that should have come from it. My calamity laid in the balances together. The picture is, here is the scales of justice. And on it, he puts the sands of the sea. That's some weight. And his troubles are equal to that, he said. It's a figure of speech to depict the greatness of his affliction. Uh, Abraham Lincoln has been called the commander in grief. Uh, he was... Uh, he was had so much on his shoulders, and he said at one time during the Civil War these words, I am now the most miserable man living. If what I feel were equally distributed to the whole human family, there would not be one cheerful face on That's how we feel sometimes, and uh, that, that's overwhelming grief. And that's where Job was. And then he said, it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. And be heavy, uh, that, that, that's not only equal to the sand of the sea, heavier. So if the sand of the sea were on one side of the scale, his troubles are on the other, the troubles would go whoop like that because it's heavier than that. That's how he feels about what he's going through. He speaks of his woes also, not only the weight but the woes. He speaks of two, uh, the arrows of God in verse 4 and the terrors of God in verse 4 and uh, describing this uh, as God's uh, affliction on him. Now great affliction will work on your mind. Uh, it creates fears, it creates panics. And especially for a mind that's not fixed on God, it's a lot worse for the unsaved, but we're all uh, can be victims of that as well. We're not immune to it. Job knows he said some strong things, and of course, Eliphaz came down on him for that in, uh, when he was talking in Job 3. But Eliphaz has just finished calling him out, and so here's what Job says in verse 3, my words are swallowed up. And then in verse 5, Doth the wild ass bray when he hath grass, or loweth the ox over his fodder? The answer is no to both of those. Animals don't cry when they have food. They cry when they don't have food. We had cattle growing up, and uh, man, they are some complaining beasts if they're hungry. And uh, just the low, the word he uses here, bray, whatever it is. Uh, but Job's saying that he's, he said those things in chapter 3 because of his suffering. Look, he says, if nothing was wrong with me, I wouldn't say those things. I, uh, cattle doesn't, don't cry when they're whole. They, this is something because of my suffering. So he doesn't speak from his comfort. And when a person is afflicted with a great affliction, he will moan and groan and often say some irrational things. And we ought to have some compassion for that. Verse 6, he talks about the weariness. Can that which is unsavory be eaten without salt? Or is there any taste in the white of an egg? Without salt and savor... Uh, food loses its appeal, doesn't it? I've read a, uh, read a book, I love 
reading history and biographies, I just read one uh, a couple of years ago about the Lewis and Clark expedition, and uh, really detailed by Stephen Ambrose. I mean, day to day, their whole expedition. It was really incredible. Uh, they they about when they got to about here or a little west of here, they ran out of salt. The second half of their expedition, they were saltless, and uh, they think they found some out west. Of, but it was it was interesting the, the complaining when they had no salt. I mean, that really affects you. I mean, it makes everything bland. Nothing is as good, and so. Food is, that needs salt is blah. Suffering uh, can also make life blah. And so he illustrates that with that picture. And then secondly, we see his request for death. He Again, in verse 8, Oh, that I might have my request, that it would please God, in verse 9, to destroy me. The request to be dead was a dominant theme, if you remember, in chapter 3. He wished his day would never have happened. He wished his mom would have dropped him on the ground. He wished God would have killed him when he was born immediately. He wanted to be dead. And here again, he mentions it. Um, it the, the request to die, of course, wasn't a good one, but it is interesting how he did it here. The person that Job directed the request to was proper. It was the right person, that God would grant me. Our requests need to be made to God. We fail miserably when we make requests to man, uh, because men have no power to answer our prayers. But it was uh, given to God. And then again, it was also a respected person that God would grant me. He didn't demand it of God. He asked it, uh, that he would grant it. In all of our praying, we ought to always respect God's wisdom in the matter. This was not a good prayer, uh, but at least he kind of left it up to the Lord there. It bows to the wisdom and the sovereignty of God in the way he makes his request. He recognizes that maybe he's asking something that God wouldn't approve of, and that's the way we ought to go about it. Now, why did Job pray to die? He gives three reasons here that he wanted to die. Number one, for comfort. Verse 9 and 10, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off, then should I yet have comfort? Job believed that dying would end his physical suffering. Uh, this is a very humanistic view of dying, that it would end, that ends all your suffering. It doesn't consider that in eternity there may also be suffering, especially for the unsaved, amen? Well, only for the unsaved. It always bothers me when I'm at a funeral uh, or somebody has talking of a memory of a loved one that I'm questioning their salvation or non-Christians, and they always, well, yes, well, now their suffering is... I mean, it may not be. If they're not saved, it certainly isn't over. And nothing they had on earth compares with the suffering after death if they're not saved. It's uh, worse than anything they experience in this life. Of course, it's not the right time to say it then, is it, <laughs> to that person. Uh, and so I always try to direct the conversation to what do you think, if they had one thing to say to you, what do you think that would be? If they could just say one thing to you now. Use that, I think it would be to prepare. Now you can use that. That's not saying where they are. Either way, the answer would prepare, wouldn't it? If they're in heaven, they'd say prepare. If they're in hell, certainly they'd say prepare. And that's the message that they would have. But, but uh, you know, we might say Job was saved, so it would be better for him. But to die, as Job requested, would uh, cause a loss of reward in eternity. And that loss cannot be compensated for the, by the end of physical suffering because we're going to see that he does get blessed much later on. And we need to let God decide our life's duration. It's never right to end it. I don't believe in assisted suicide. I don't believe in Kevorkian's uh, whole crusade he had going. He lived close by us there in Michigan, so we heard a lot about what was going on when he was in his heyday. But uh, what we see as comfort is not the whole story. We don't know what God's got in store for us. And, of course, we're going to see at the end of Job's life that he was blessed like it was never before. And then not only for comfort, he wanted confidence. Look at verse 10. Let him not spare, for I have not concealed the words of the Holy One. Job had been very faithful to the word of God in his life. In fact, even in his suffering, he 
said here, I would harden, that means to stand firm, myself in sorrow in verse 10. He had openly showed loyalty to the word of God, uh, and it gave him confidence that death would be better than suffering. Now, this is both good and bad. Job was short-sighted and mistaking in wishing to die, but his confidence is justified. I mean, he knew where he would be. He knew he was a child of God. At the end of life, confidence in our future destiny, it isn't found in success, fame, wealth, all those things, but putting our trust in Christ, and uh, so that does give us that confidence. And then his conditions. Another reason he wanted to die was his present conditions. They certainly were not good. In, from a human standpoint especially, he had no power for living. In verse 11 through 13, what is my strength that I should hope? Is my strength the strength of stones or is my flesh of brass? I is not my help in me. So Job's affliction, why live? Can't do anything. Life's not worth living. That's his, that was his idea here. Now again, this is a lame argument for death. It's the thinking that leaves out the enabling of God. And I've talked to people like this, and you probably have too, that are just done. They just would rather pass away. They, they, they think that life is so bad, they just want to give up. Of course, how many of us don't know someone who's probably committed suicide? I, I've had friends in my life that have done that, or people I knew anyway. But many people, past and present, uh, have had great physical affliction, and God used them in great ways. Amy Carmichael suffered greatly and impacted thousands. Fanny Crosby was blind, and yet how many hymns in our hymnal from, from her writing those things? Joni Erickson Tata, you might know her. She's still living, uh, paralyzed as a young lady and has encouraged millions in, in, with her ministry. Uh, don't have to go any further in my own family than my dad. You know, has, has been an encouragement to many and never let his disability get in the way of that. So the accomplishments of disabled saints can put us to shame sometimes. Handicaps and sufferings are often the inspiration to great accomplishment. And so this is a bad prayer, a bad attitude to have. And uh, then he also here said he had no prospects for living. Verse 11, what is my strength that I should hope? What is in my end that I should prolong my life? There's no reason for me to go on living. He sees no prospects for his life uh, or no better times ahead for him. And all of us can understand Job's pessimism. What one of us hasn't just been overcome by circumstance? I just can't go on. I mean, it's just be better if I fade away. What one of us hadn't wanted to quit? And so we can understand. <coughs> when clouds come into our life, we tend to think the sun's never come out. That's just how we feel at the moment. You remember, I was talking to somebody today about this, uh, the, the verse, <coughs> I don't know exactly where it's found on Psalms somewhere, but David said, Oh, that I had the wings of a bird that I might fly to the wilderness. And I like the next part, and remain there. Now, David, seriously, you think David would be happy in the wilderness for the rest of his days? No, neither would I, but I felt like going to the wilderness and just getting out and taking a tent and living like Swiss Family Robinson for the rest of my life, get rid of all the troubles. Well, we wouldn't be happy there a long time. We can understand the attitude. We understand the feeling. And here's where he was at. <coughs> Because when clouds come, we have the tendency to think, it's over. The sun's never coming out again. That kind of thinking leaves God out of the picture. And that's what the problem was. <coughs> this is what I really wanted to focus on tonight. We're running out of time. But the rebuking of Eliphaz. Job rebukes Eliphaz here. And at times, by the way, <coughs> it seems to be speaking to all three of his friends. And that's okay because the other two would be no better than Eliphaz. In fact, Eliphaz was the dominant of the three. He was the first to speak. His speeches were longer, longer than both the others. But look at the rebuke in verse 14. To him that is afflicted, pity should be showed from his friend, but he forsaketh the fear of the Almighty. Eliphaz had failed 
<coughs> to do his duty in being a comforter. He was a failure as a comforter, as a counselor, and as a friend. And Job tells him why. He says pity should be showed him from his friend. Wouldn't you agree the duty of the comforter is to maybe comfort? <laughs> the duty of a friend is maybe to have a little compassion, some sympathy. Instead, Eliphaz's speech had been critical of Job almost throughout the whole thing. It's pretty bad when you show up to comfort somebody and you make his load heavier before you leave. That's what Eliphaz... I mean, he's coming here and piling on. It's, it's like that old saying that Christians are the only ones who sh are the only army that shoot their wounded. Well, that's what's happening here. I mean, here's Job in the worst condition of his life, and Eliphaz comes along and starts to kick him while he's down. And uh, what a terrible thing. The language... Uh, <laughs> this this phrase here, I had to look a little bit into it, but he forsaketh the fear of the Almighty. The, the language of the verse in the original, really what this is saying is, even though he forsaketh the fear of the Almighty, the idea here is that even if the sufferer has forsaken God for the moment, he still should have showed kindness. Even if Job had messed up, there still should have been some compassion. I have found that a little kindness, even if the sufferer brought it on himself, will often be more helpful in bringing him back to God than to come and kick him while he's down. Most of the time, people are already beating themselves up for their mistakes and dumb things. Let's just encourage him and lift him up, and maybe that'll bring him back to God. Eliphaz could have showed some compassion, even if Job was in fact failing God, like he claimed. He still should have had compassion and tried to help. <coughs> he also rebuked him for deception. My brethren, this is the three friends but especially Eliphaz, have dealt deceitfully. What's that about? He accuses him of being deceptive. Well, Eliphaz appeared to come as a comforter, but he was actually a discomforter, if that's a word. He was not helpful at all, uh, so thus he was deceptive. Too many people like this are in our lives today, and even in our churches, <coughs> where we, they pose as friends, but they're actually enemies. They pretend they want to help, when in fact they want to take advantage of you. They sound gracious in coming to you, but then turn to sharp criticism. Or they compliment you to get your ear and then they go talk about you behind your back. There's people like that all over today. And that's deception. And that's what Job is saying here. Uh, now, in representing the deception, I think it's interesting here. <coughs> Job compares it to his streams that in winter they have much ice and snow. You can't get water. And in the summer when it gets hot, they all dried up. So those that come to them looking for water are disappointed. You can give us some examples here. That come to look for water are disappointed because there's no water here. So... Eliphaz, you've seen the, the uh, or heard of mirages in the desert, and the cartoons always have, you know, the nice lake there, and then the character will dive into the sand, because uh, that's the idea here. It looks like water finally, and then you go, and it's all dried up. And uh, this is what Eliphaz looked promising, but he was empty of anything good. He didn't help him out. So he appeared like the streams to be a source of comfort, but then the stream was dry when he opened his mouth. Terrible, terrible thing to be said about. And then look at the rebuke for dread. Verse 21, you see my casting down and are afraid. Job rebukes the fear of Eliphaz. Now, what is he afraid of? Well, I, I think that, let's, let's get into Eliphaz's head. Eliphaz thinks Job's being punished. So do his friends. And so Job's wretched condition, I think, frightens Eliphaz because he assumes it is divine judgment. Here's how Rawlinson put it. This is a commentator. They began to be afraid of showing friendliness because they thought him an object of divine vengeance. And they feared if they showed him sympathy, they might involve themselves in his punishment. So here's a life as, yeah, if I show him kindness and God's punishing him, maybe he'll punish me too. Oh, wait a minute. We need to be encouragers. 
Amen. I mean, you need to help people, not kick them when they're down. Again, most of the time when somebody is, even if they're being punished by the Lord, they're, they're beating themselves up enough. Let's not go around and kick them more. So he rebukes them for that. And then he rebukes them for the deficiency. Verse 22 and 23. <coughs> did I say bring unto me or give me a reward for your substance or did it, or deliver me from any of his hands? So Eliphaz is so deficient he wouldn't even help Job with some comforting words, which is a very small task. Not going to cost him anything. Hey, kindness is free. It's so valuable to the ones that receive it. And Job's saying here, I didn't ask for money. I didn't ask for a handout. I didn't ask for you to go to the people who stole my cattle and get them back. I didn't ask for you to restore my wealth. All I want is a little kindness. And you wouldn't even do that. His deficiency here. What a sad rebuke. Then he rebuked for his declarations. Verse 24, teach me and I will hold my tongue and cause me to understand wherein I have erred. The words of the comforter should instruct to help one understand better his troubles. And Eliphaz hadn't helped Job at all by his speech. He had indicted Job, but it did not help solve the problem. And then look at these words in verse 25. How forcible are right words. My, oh my, but that is so true. No one's going to argue with that statement. Eliphaz, if he had said the right thing, he could have been a big help to Job. Could have been a big encouragement. Your words have great power to heal or to tear down. And especially when someone is in a vulnerable position like Job was. And we're in ministry. All of us are in ministry in some level if you're involved at all in church. But you're, you have opportunities <coughs> to help people when they're in a vulnerable position. The power of your words are so great. Did you know the words that you speak have the power of life and death in them? The Bible says in Proverbs 18:21, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. Have you ever been deeply hurt by somebody's words? You know the pain they can cause. And it's, it's worse than physical pain, and it stays with you sometimes for a lifetime. Words can crush another man's spirit, or they can encourage and lift his defeated soul. Words, just words. They're free. We just need to... Have them backed up by a little... I love the, how this goes with the challenge tonight. Some compassion. Just having some compassion like Jesus had. The Bible also goes so far as to say words are like battle weapons. In uh, Proverbs or Psalm 64.3, who wet their tongue like a sword and bend their bows to shoot their arrows, even bitter words. Now, how is a words like an arrow? <coughs> words are like an arrow in that once you let it go, you ain't calling it back. I've misshot arrows before. And, you know, you have that where it kind of slows slow motion to know it's a bad shot. There's nothing you can do in the air. All of that seems true of a bowling ball. And when it's starting down there, once it leaves your hands, it's going to go where it's going to go, and you can't call it back. That's the same way with your words. Like arrows, once they are delivered, they're gone. And, and I, we've all been there where we say something and we just do anything to you know, hit rewind and go back just a little bit and take that, but we've said it, we've got to live with it. <coughs> That's why it's so important to put the focus on the training before the release. Uh, in our words, it would be uh, conditioning our heart. That's what we really need to focus on. Uh, all of us have said things we wish we could take back. The, our words also have the power to produce good and bad fruit. <coughs> Proverbs 10.31, The mouth of the just bringeth forth wisdom, but the froward tongue shall be cut out. <coughs> now with your mouth, you will bring forth fruit. You decide whether it's good or bad, because you are bringing forth fruit with the words you say. So you determine whether that's good or bad. The wise man learns to carefully speak because he knows he will bear the consequence of his words. I've said words years ago, 
that I still bear the consequence of, good and bad. And we all do. We're very careful uh, what we, how we say and what we say. You can leave a lasting impression on folks. Do, have any of you ever, do you, do you remember back in, in even elementary, if you had a teacher that gave you support, positive help, and how long that stays with you? My teacher was Mrs. Spratt, my very first teacher at the public school. And uh, from the Amish, it was a big, different, different language, uh, different culture. Everything was different. And she was such an encouragement and a help. That, that'll stay with me my whole life. And as, as will things that were done to hurt me will also stay. I mean, these things, are, these things are a lifetime. And you have that. I often think uh, of back to things that were said that were hurtful or things that were done that were hurtful and things that were done that were helpful. I always remember, who else is remembering back to my time? I hope it's good. <laughs> I'm sure it's not all good. We need to watch our words. They have the power to reveal a man's heart. What's in the well will come up in the bucket. Have you ever been around a person who's, maybe you're working with somebody and maybe they smash their thumb or stub their toe or whack their head and they, you hear words you did not know your friend said? That comes from the heart, all right? That's uh, that's coming from some, it's not the word that needs the fix and it's the heart that needs the fix. And so that's what we need to focus on. That's why I reiterate, I think Eliphaz had some problems that went a little deeper than just his words. I think Eliphaz has been waiting to take Job down a notch. Remember, Job was the greatest in the East, greater than Eliphaz. And I wonder, we talked about that last week a little bit. You know, it's a natural thing for people to want to take people that are above them down a peg. Here's this chance. Unfortunately, we have some Eliphazes in our churches. It comes from a bad heart. Proverbs 12:18. there is that speaketh, like the piercings of the sword. We need to take much care because the words we say, especially to hurting people, will devastate. And here was Job. What an opportunity to lift up and to encourage a brother in tragedy. And they, they did. Uh, we can make it better or worse. Uh, somebody put it this way. I love it. Watch your tongue. It's in a wet place. It's easy to slip. <laughs> Watch your tongue. Uh, we'll stop there tonight. But he goes on and talks about... Uh, uh, denouncing, uh, you rebuked him for denouncing, you rebuked him for discomforting, talking about the fatherless digging a pit for your friend, really what they laid is a trap there, and uh, it was a, a bad outcome. Uh, that, just, a, just again, another reminder for us, <coughs> it's kind of the same theme we've had because we're the same section here, but you're going to meet hurting people. Learn to take opportunity. A couple, couple of, uh, wasn't this last one, but oh, uh, to New York, flying in the plane, and the guy I was sitting beside was weeping. He, he didn't want to talk about uh, he was he, he wept for probably 10 minutes when I saw he was kind of himself. Uh, he was all right. Everything. And he, he didn't want to talk. But, it, you know, we have those opportunities. And it was there for him. Doesn't mean they're always going to take it. But we ought to have our ears and eyes open for people that are hurting. And when people are hurting, I have had people in church for years that what brought them was was a pastor stepped in. We had we had a couple like that in our church. And faithful, faithful, good givers and good servers. And uh, I talked to him, I, we, we got together for dinner one time, and I talked to him, and, they, and it turned out that years before, the pastor had, had uh, stepped in for a family tragedy, just encouraged him. It can make a big difference. Our words can make a big difference. Elifas failed. Let us not. Let us be sensitive. Thank you, Lord.